A clarinet can make a virtually infinite number of sounds. There are practically an infinite number of stars. We could never list all the combinations of ice cream that are available. And yet, there are fewer than 100 basic elements on the Earth. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about digital, analog, and quantum states. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. It's back. The Real Skills Conference is back. A conference for people like you. Not a bunch of speakers, but interactive. Two hours on the tips of your toes, seeing and being seen. Being part of a conference about real skills, the skills that matter. Solving interesting problems, doing work that truly matters. We don't run it very often. It's proven, it's effective. 97% of the people who started it last time were there at the end. Check out realskillsconference.com. All the details are there. I hope you'll consider joining us. Come, make a ruckus. Thanks. I actually really want to talk about customer service, but first, quantum states. Why are there fewer than 100 elements? Everything from uranium to hydrogen and in between, but you will recognize the names of most of them, and there aren't that many to choose from. On the other hand, analog things, like the sounds an instrument can make, are numberless. So why the distinction? The distinction is that electrons which determine which element we're dealing with, need to be here or there. They are never in between, or at least not for very long, here or there. They have different quantum states. And when they go from one state to another, they either take in energy or give off energy, but they are sticky, one state or another, which is what we need to understand so we can talk about my oven If all you want to do is heat up frozen pizza, you can go online and buy a toaster oven for $69. Everyone who has spent more than $69 on a toaster oven has made a decision about how to spend their time and their money. That the oven in their home might be for entertaining large groups, but it's also possibly a story they tell themselves about what a kitchen is supposed to look like, about luxury, about status, or just good engineering. Maybe it's about making sure you can produce what you want to produce when you need to produce it. You've probably guessed from listening to this podcast that I have a pretty nice oven. Not one of those crazy expensive ovens from France that you can't turn off, but a nice enough oven. Well, 13 months after we got our new oven, it stopped being an oven in the sense that to be an oven, when you turn it on, it's supposed to get hot. So I called the company that made it, and I'm going to tell you it was GE, not because this is a screed about General Electric, but because if I didn't, you'd wonder the whole time who it was. So I called up GE, and I said, my oven is broken. Now, in this moment, I am not like I was five minutes before that, because my quantum state as a customer is not on an analog scale. So let me break that down to show you what I mean. When we listen to a vinyl record or a live concert, music gets quiet or it gets loud, and it does that gradually. 
moving from one tiny step to another. If I look at a population of people, say a million people, and I look at their height, I can plot a curve of how tall each one of those people are, and that curve, looked at from a suitable distance, will be a curve. It won't be very bumpy, because with a million people, I'll see a normal distribution. Most people are in the center, some people are at one edge, some people are at the other. It's smooth. Even though looked at closely enough, it's not for our purposes of understanding the statistics of that population, it's as smooth as we need it to be. The problem comes when we zoom in close. Because when we zoom in close, consumer states are not the same as height. Height changed gradually when we were growing. Even if we had a growth spurt, we weren't growing so fast that someone could see us grow. But consumers, consumers flip and flop. If you look at the distribution of reviews on Yelp or Amazon, you will not see the same curve that you see for the distribution of height in any population. It is not a normal distribution. It is, in fact, a bimodal distribution with one big hump at one-star reviews and one big hump at five-star reviews. There's a reason for this that's caused by two factors. One, it's quite possible that for most mass market products, most people are actually in the middle, saying, yeah, it's fine. But, and it's a huge but, the only people who are energized enough to post a review are either the trolls and the critics or the raving fans. In the middle, you don't bother who bothers to spend the time to post a three-star review? It was pretty good. They did what they said they were going to do. I might come back. That's not much of a review. I don't want to write that review, and I sure don't want to read that review. And so, when we deal with individual consumers who are going to talk about their interaction with you and your work, we have to understand that the only ones who are going to take most actions are at one end of the curve or the other. My thesis is this. For most of the time, customer service that is worth investing in is either about moving somebody from, that's eh, fine, to I am a raving fan, or it's about mollifying and saving the day for someone who is about to flip to the quantum state of, I hate you. I hate you because you lied to me. I hate you because you tricked me. I hate you because you made me look stupid. And now, now that the internet has connected us, not just to each other, but to the brands in our lives, it's imperative that organizations that do customer service think very hard about the state a customer is in. Because if you treat all customers like they are on a smooth, continuous curve, you are going to be wrong almost all the time. You're going to spend money on the wrong things, and you're going to end up disappointing the people you are hoping to turn into raving fans. So back to my oven. In the moment that I am calling General Electric, I feel really fragile. I feel fragile because I made a significant commitment to putting this thing into my house. It's a daily reminder of the choice I made. 
So the first thing that happens when you call the oven company to get service is they ask you for the serial number. That's not an unreasonable thing to ask for because how else to know if it's under warranty? Well, to get the serial number out of my oven, I needed to lie on my back, elevated just above the oven door, sticking my head into the oven so that I could see written upside down and backwards on the roof of the oven in small 14-point type, a complicated serial number long enough to have included every single human on earth having a hundred ovens. Fortunately, I have a camera on my phone, so I stuck my hand in the oven and took a picture of it, but even that wasn't high res enough to figure out if that was an S or a 5. So in my elevated quantum state, we began our interaction by me doing an errand for the company around a poorly designed label that should have been easy to read and easy to find. If General Electric answers the phone and a helpful person sees me, understands me, and deals with the problem, they have validated my initial decision. They have made it much more likely that I'm going to move into raving fan territory. The investment of $5 of General Electric's money into this interaction is worth $5,000 in marketing. Instead, General Electric's independent appliance division had done the math. A CFO or an accountant had looked hard at this and said, wait a minute, if we can put people in a phone tree, maybe some of them will lose interest before we have to deal with them. Oh, if it's a warranty call, let's figure out how to spread out our costs associated with it. Because if it takes a little bit longer, we'll save some more money. That money we save goes straight to the bottom line. My hunch is that a marketer wasn't in those meetings. So, as you can imagine, I was put in the phone tree, and then finally I talked to someone who said I would have to wait eight days before someone came to fix my oven. Yes, I have a toaster oven, and we have an oven at work, so no one's going to starve here. Maybe there are good logistical reasons to spread it out and have someone wait eight days. All you need to do when you're spending the $5 on an alert, caring person who you have given the freedom to be him or herself is say, wow, really sorry this happened. We're going to do everything we can to fix it. Here's how you contact me. Here's how we're going to keep you up to date about what's coming along. And here's some data, a website, an easy way for you to track what's upcoming. We're going to make it so that we can do it all in one visit. We hear you, we see you. This is not what the CFO wants. The CFO wants you to say, there's an eight-hour window, please be home the whole time. Well, you've already guessed the fact that they didn't show up, that I waited from eight until noon and they didn't show up, and they didn't tell me until 11.45 in the morning that they weren't going to show up between eight and noon. Now, in a world where they are tracking dogs, cats, and people in everything that we do all the time, it's really hard to imagine that they didn't know until 11.45 that he wasn't going to show up. But that's not the point of the rant. The point of the rant is to understand that, again, you have a quantum moment here, a moment where spending the time and the effort to see somebody when they are about to be excited to a new quantum state really pays off. The first 13 months I had this oven, 
They didn't have to spend a penny to engage with me because it wouldn't have made a difference. I was already happy. But in these key moments of breakage, they can intervene. They can intervene at reasonably low cost by being human, by saying, oh, wait a minute, here's a high value customer who doesn't just have a toaster oven. We made a promise to this person and we are about to break it. What should we do now? But if you view the world as a continuous analog system, a bell curve, well, everyone's pretty much the same. But everyone pretty much isn't the same. Regardless of their income, where they're coming from, what they look like, what they do, everyone is at a different quantum state. So here's one of the challenges of customer service triage. Triage, what's triage? Triage is a medical term that they use at the emergency room, putting people into three groups. That's the TRI in triage. Triage means this person's going to get well no matter what we do. This person's going to die no matter what we do. And this person, the third group, they will respond to immediate intervention. In a busy emergency room, which group do you think they spend time on? The problem is this. The problem is the old model, based on a lack of information, meant that the only way to indicate that you were in the third group, that your quantum state was at risk, was to have a fit, to write a letter to the CEO, to figure out how to raise your hand higher than everyone else, to stomp your foot. It's a great old cartoon. One of those fat, suited, rich guys with a cigar is standing at the airplane counter while the long-suffering gate agent is making an announcement that there's no room on the plane. And the big fat cat says, do you know who I am? Well, the unflappable gate agent takes out her microphone and says to the terminal, attention, ladies and gentlemen, there's someone at the ticket counter who has amnesia. If anyone can come help, we would appreciate it. But levity aside, having a fit at the counter doesn't help anyone. It certainly doesn't help those poor folks on the front lines who have had all of their agency stripped away by giant systems designed by people trying to save a nickel. And it doesn't help the customer who shouldn't have to put on public displays of emotion to get something that they need, particularly when they're in a risky quantum state. So what we're left with is this. We're left with organizations that now need to figure out based on behavior, clues, analysis of the life cycle, who is in a quantum state that can be adjusted. Because neglecting your best customers, figuring out how to give a bonus to people who switch to your phone service, but not take care of the people who are already on it, that's a long-term way to brand death. On the other hand, I get that you probably can't afford to spend an unlimited amount of money on every single customer. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is to treat different people differently and to get really smart about what it means for someone to be different. How many days after someone buys a new car should a human with authority call that person on the phone and say, how do you like your car? Because if you never call them, well, then you're leaving them to seethe, to marinate in their own juices, and to probably vent at some point. But if you call them too often, well, then maybe your CFO is going to say you're spending too much money. So the art of this 
is to realize that what makes something a purple cow, what makes it remarkable, is that you designed it right in the first place, that you created something worth talking about. And then, on top of it, that when something stumbles, and yes, now you know something stumbled because of the Internet of Things, because there's a chip in the device. When something stumbles, what proactive effort can you take so that you turn the stumble into such a plus that people insist on talking about it? And yes, it keeps getting harder and harder to do that. Your Amazon package arrived an hour late. Oh boy, boo-hoo. In the old days, it took two weeks to get something by mail. And now we're complaining because it got there an hour late. Everything is getting faster. Everything that is measured keeps getting improved. But it's a huge but. There's a role here for human intervention. And it needs to be human intervention based on an understanding that different people want different things in different moments. And that if you are putting your customer service people through a grinder, giving them nothing but rules that they are not allowed to break, it's extremely unlikely that you will develop a brand for the ages. I like telling the story of Tony Shea and Zappos because I tell it a little differently than most people. Let's say your mission was to build an online shoe store. Now, an online shoe store, sort of by definition, is a ridiculous idea. What do we care more about trying on than shoes? Shoes need to fit. You can't walk around with shoes that don't fit just because they're pretty. Online shoes? That doesn't make any sense. And when Zappos launched, it was the most crowded time ever to launch an internet company. The cost of all those ads, all that promo, prohibitive. So what did Tony do? Tony understood that anybody who calls in to Zappos is in a moment where their quantum state is about to shift, where they're either going to go down a state and become a different sort of element, untouchable, or go up a state, releasing energy and making things better, spreading the word. And so they did a few things. The first thing they did was they trained the people they hired. And after their weeks of training, they sat them down and they said, you know, we like you and we'd like you to work here, but here's $3,000 if you will quit today. They bribed their employees to quit before they started work. Why would you do that? Well, you did it because if someone turned down that money, you knew they were in it for the long haul, for the right reasons. The second thing they did was instead of rewarding people to get off the phone, they rewarded people to stay on the phone. And that meant that people in their most fraught moment, in the moment when their quantum state could go up or down, were eagerly engaged with on the phone. What did that lead to? It led to conversation. It led to remarkability. It was probably the cheapest marketing campaign of its kind. And yes, Zappos sold for almost a billion dollars because the customer service rep was willing to sit for two hours, three hours, four hours on the phone talking about shoes because they weren't talking about shoes. They were talking about their customers. So I think it's naive to say all customer service should be instant and perfect, that any customer at any time should get the CEO on the phone and that she should help that customer no matter what her request is. 
I think it's totally legitimate to say to a customer, you know what? Your expectations don't match our promises and we're not going to be able to serve you. Here's a phone number for our competition. Good luck to you. We can say that with dignity and respect and wish them well because our job is not to be perfect all the time. But our job might be to make promises and keep them. And one of the promises that a successful brand makes is this. We accept that you will have quantum moments when it's all on the table, when the chips are down. And in that moment, we will respect where you came from, see who you are, make a judgment about what you are worth to us in the future and us to you, and act accordingly. Because the way to justify all this internet snooping is not so some marketer can figure out how behind our back they can target us for something that they think we want. But maybe it could be mutual, that we like the fact that the companies we do business with have thought about who we are, have thought about what we need, and offer it to us. It doesn't always take a lot. Mostly, it takes understanding that the person in front of you is in this moment about to make a decision. And once they make a decision, it's not going to be that easy to fix it in the future. Knowing that and acting on it is a chance to make things better right at the key moment. Thanks for listening. In a second, we'll be back with two good questions. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I wrote a new book. It was originally called Trust Yourself, but my editor persuaded me correctly to change the title to The Practice. If you'd like to see a free excerpt and a summary, visit trustyourself.com. Got to do something with that domain. Check it out. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll drop me a note. Just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two questions came in from opposite sides of the globe, both of them poignant, both of them important. Here we go. Hey, Seth. My name is Agle from Vilnius, Lithuania. I am now finishing the second year of teaching at the Faculty of Architecture. Comparatively to other university courses in this country, this faculty receives very good students. However, teaching kind of a secondary subject, such as history of architecture, while design project is considered as the main, I face difficulties of opening minds and hearts of majority of students to embrace history of architecture as complementary, but also very important eye-opening and mind-tickling subject necessary for conscious and erudite practitioners responsible for our present and future environment. My main goal is to encourage critical thinking, curiosity and, instead of stuffing dry data, such as names and years to help them look at architecture and history as dynamic, multi-layered field of interest. 
but I have received very little and luckily very warm reception for my teaching from the students. I noticed that a majority prefers a recipe kind of tasks. They're fearful to engage into discussion and through the times of pandemics having to teach online, I've been facing Zoom with some 40 faceless windows. Majority finds excuses for showing their faces even when asked, and I see no point in employing autocratic methods of teaching. With that, I mean to oblige them to turn cameras on. Listening to your podcast for more than two years, I kept raising a question what a good teacher should be like today. And what matters for successful teaching of such subject can be. And while finding my own answers, I would love to hear yours. Thank you, Seth. Take care. Best from Vilnius. Thank you for the work you're doing. Those students, the ones who appreciate the work, are so lucky to have you. And you are right there at the chasm, the chasm between learning and education. You're showing up as a teacher seeking enrollment, ready to turn on lights, help people get to a new level. And your students, your students are daring you, begging you to offer them education instead. Will this be on the test? What's the minimal amount of work? I'm going to turn off my camera so I can surf the net and not be distracted by you or embarrassed that I'm not looking at you. And so, because we've brainwashed kids for so long, indoctrinated them into a system that wants nothing for them, from them, but their compliance, you are paying the price because you're one of the good ones. You're a teacher who's there for the right reasons, teaching the right thing. So how to move forward? Well, I have two things in mind. The first one is enrollment has to be voluntary, that there are some people in your class who want to be there, giving them a chance to raise their hand, creating a circle for them, status for them, a way to say this is for people who want to be here, you won't get many, but the ones you get will be there for the right reason. And you won't need to wrap their knuckles with a ruler, and you won't need to ask them to turn on their video. And that offering this enrichment to the ones who want it and celebrating them, helping them level up in the eyes of their peers, that starts to undo the indoctrination which leads to the second half. What do we do with the masses of kids? It's not their fault. Since they were five, people have been pushing them to act this way in education. It seems to me what we need is project-centered, student-driven education, basically saying to kids, all right, fine, I'll give you your A. Here's what you have to do to get your A. You have to pick what you're going to do, and you have to do it beautifully. That this choice of yours, to pick it, to pick from one of a list, serves as a form of enrollment. If it's project-based, it means that you can finish the project. The sooner you finish the project, the faster you can get back to surfing the web. Fine with me, but then there's going to be another project. That what you can help students understand is that project-based, student-driven, student-centered education turns into learning. And that as long as they're brainwashed into believing that they'll do anything to get that grade, let them know that this is what they have to do to get that grade. And as someone who teaches, I got to tell you, it must be completely enervating 
and undermining to be in that Zoom room with people who have their cameras off. I would say to those kids, either come or don't come. If you don't come, you don't pass. And if you come, you have to come. You have to be present. Just because we're not in a room doesn't mean we can't be together in this room. Hi, Seth. This is Tani from Australia. I own a company where we have about 50% of our workforce in a warehouse situation where they really need to be physically present, um, sort of building the product, assembling it, and then shipping it. And then about 50% of our team are kind of you know, administrative, marketing, kind of sales-related stuff. And I'm in this interesting dilemma where I can be really flexible with my upstairs team, as we call them, because they're able to work from home, to utilize, you know, these tools that you speak about. I just listened to your Zoom podcast, hence the question. Um, And I feel like I can create this really flexible and kind of, you know, human-centric work environment for these people. Um, But then I have this team that's sort of required to be physically present and it's really hard to build flexibility and kind of, um, you know, space into their workflow. Um, And we do nice things like have group meditations and, you know, um, group lunches and all those kinds of things. But I just wondered if you had any thoughts as to how people who run businesses that require a bit of physical showing up um, can, I guess, think a little bit more flexibly or a little bit more laterally around how we kind of create interesting and novel workspaces for our staff. Um, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. I'm in Australia where the pandemic hasn't really been as, um, or in a part of Australia, I should say, where the pandemic hasn't been as damaging. So we still have a lot of face-to-face work. So yeah, really curious to hear your thoughts. And thank you so much for your podcast. It's one of the highlights of my week when I see a new one come through. Thanks. I grew up in a family that had a factory. My dad's factory made hospital cribs, 90% of the metal hospital cribs around the world made in Buffalo, New York, by a UAW-organized workforce. And yes, there's a difference between the place where they're bending the steel, where there's grease on just about every surface, and the office, which has carpet on the floor. And even in a factory as egalitarian as the one my sister now runs, the truth is still there. The truth is that front-of-house jobs, office jobs, feel cushier than factory jobs. And... Because the people in the office have found some power, some status, and some leverage, they've given themselves the snacks. They've given themselves an easier job, easier physically for sure. And they say to the people in the factory, well, you can come up front as soon as you're willing to do the work that we do up front. And that work might mean closing sales. That work might mean designing a brochure that changes someone's mind. Too often, the people who have the cushy jobs forget about the part that earned them the cushy job and just like the cushy part. It's interesting. You might hear some tapping in the background as I record this and a few other podcasts. They're rebuilding an entire brick wall just outside the window here. People who lay brick for a living work really hard, way harder physically than I ever have. And they are not paid particularly well. That the delta, the gap, between how much they're paid and how much value they create is easy to measure. But because lots of people say they can lay brick, the people who hire brick masons end up racing to the bottom. 
anyone who's good enough can have that slot. And then a couple blocks from here is a place that does design. And they're hard up to find people skilled enough and passionate enough to do what they need done. And so they pay more and they pay more and they pay more. And the gap, the amount of value taken off the table by the worker is far greater. And so people who manage, who lead white-collar idea workers have discovered that many of those jobs go underfilled because they can't find enough people to do them. Whereas with a 150-year head start, industrial factory work, there's a long line of people who want to do that. So I haven't answered your question, but I sort of set the stage for the answer, which is you are trying to create an egalitarian and open workplace. But I'm not sure you're being as clear as you could be to everyone involved about what the jobs are and what it takes to have one of the jobs. That there's no reason that someone who works on the factory side can't aspire to work a different job. And that you could probably create an environment where people who choose to rotate one way or the other. And the people who choose to rotate toward factory jobs would do that knowing what the deal is, how many hours they have to be at the machine, how much they get paid for it. There's examples of, for example, car dealerships that have rotated the people who work in the service department with the people who work on the sales side. And usually what happens is that the service people want to go back to doing service and the salespeople want to go back to doing sales. So neither job is better than the other, but the jobs are different, and we shouldn't pretend that they're not. At the very same time, we really do owe it to ourselves, to our organizations, to clean out the cruft, to give the people who aren't liking their job, who are simply showing up, a chance to do that work somewhere else. Because if someone's enjoying all the perks but not producing the value on the office side, well, then they're taking from everybody else. And the same thing is true for work on the factory side. That work is still work. Work is difficult in a competitive environment, in a world that's been turned upside down by a pandemic and so many other things. Work is hard, and it helps if we can be clear about why we're here, who does the work, and what work they're doing. As in the previous answer, project-based, worker-centric work almost always produces better output than someone who's just saying, what's the minimum I can do to get a paycheck around here? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. 
we don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.